Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Global Marketing Show brought to you by Rapport International, who provides high quality written translation and spoken interpretation services. And their tidbit for this episode uh, is about cooking. And in the United States, we use the idiom, too many cooks spoil the stew, which is used to mean that too many people giving input can ruin the outcome. So you don't just use it about cooking, but you might use it in a business scenario. In Spanish, they say, muchas manos en un plato hacen mucho garabato, which translates to many hands on a plate draw many doodles. So it's always fun to see how idioms actually translate. You can't use machine translation and you can't use somebody who's not fully familiar with both languages. So the reason we are talking about cooking today is our guest is Walter Brooks. And he's got a fantastic story. I heard about him when I was at the State International Development office's annual meeting, and somebody from the USDA came up and talked about him and his incredible success in Dubai. So Walter, welcome to the Global Marketing Show. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell us about your sauces and your company? Because this is very interesting. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, again for having me on today. Brooks Mate Gourmet Foods is a long way from whew, the where I started today. It's a global food company that delivers foods to you know just about anywhere in the world. We started uh, in 2004. Um, we've grown from there to establish some exporting, and then it's allowed us to really kind of get our foot placed in a lot of different countries. We focus on 100% natural, clean label products that you know free of ingredients that we can't spell. Things that are real simple: one, two, three, four ingredients. I think in our ketchups, and then we kind of add vegetables and things like that to make it enhance for different flavors. Oh, but, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait. You got to tell us about your chocolate sauce. That's the one that catches yeah. my eye every time. <laughs> That's my flagship. That's that I've been working on that. It's like a Reese's Pieces moment, I guess you can say. So it's, you know, and it's like that story you said, right? So I'm in the kitchen and I'm enjoying my basic platform of sauce. And then I said, you know, I was just going, hmm. Yeah, because I'm always, as an artist, a food artist, I'm always trying to push the envelope to see where I can go, what new twists I could make, and how can I get my products to speak a little bit differently to different people. So once I was sitting down and I looked around and I said, man, you know, I wonder, you know, chocolate is such a great spice. And I said, I wonder what kind, and it's a sweetener too. And I said, hmm. So I just said, let me, let me go ahead and stir some of this in the pot. Now, wait, wait, wait. wait. And we have to, we have to clarify here that this is, this is barbecue sauce. So we're not talking ice cream sauce or any of those other sauces. We're talking good old country barbecue sauce. Correct. Correct. Okay. So go ahead. So you're thinking about the chocolate. So we had our, our Georgia sweet. And then I said to myself, I said, you know, it just can go a little bit, you know, further. And so I kept the basic and I enhanced it to a chocolate, add chocolate. And when I did that, I had a couple other kickups to it with the sweet and a little bit of tang and some, some, some good pop on the back end with a little bit of heat because it was just a sweet sauce. So I wanted to be bold and spicy, but yet decadent. And so we came up with chocolate. So it's, it's, it's a chocolate barbecue finishing sauce. And so we kept the French spelling of it because it's, it's more than just a chocolate flavored, you know, sauce. So it has a little bit more chef appeal to it and, and, and multi-uses in the kitchen. So it's great for, you know, just marinating, barbecuing soups, enhanced flavor profiles, vinaigrettes. So I, I have so many uses for it. We've, we've served governors and 
mayors all the way on down here in Atlanta for decades. And it's just been a real favorite on the street here when I was hustling my little food operation on the corners at the nightclubs at night, trying to get it out there. And uh, oh my, these uh, FedEx executives going, man, we want to invest. We don't want to do this forever. <laughs> it's like, okay, well. That's great. Yeah. And, and if you go to his website, Brooks, made gourmetfoods.com you can look it up and it's yeah. it's gluten-free no high fructose corn syrup uh so all natural that's even an added bonus when it's so uh yeah uh, when you're good cooking, tasting when you're cooking it's just so much easier as a chef just to just remove the bad you know if you're making things from scratch you have the option not to add these ingredients you know you, you don't need them no one cooks with preservatives in their kitchen intentionally it's just something that you out of acceptance for different products you then add those products to your recipes and then there is the problem so people are much more out of this hybrid state of COVID much more aware and savvy to their recipe menus and what they put in their bodies Hmm. So, you know, it's the new hybridarians are coming out and they're, they're more conscious of healthier foods and they'll go gravitate to them, not because of vegetarian, but because they've taken enough time off to now educate themselves about their recipes and then using what they put in their bodies. Okay. So you used a word I hadn't heard before. Habitarians? Hybrid. Yeah. Hybrids of Hybridarians. Yeah. Define that for me. I can make well, it. COVID's locked everyone up for so long that. Again, people have stepped back and said to themselves, well, what, what, am I, what am I doing? So I'm going to start working out better. I'm going to start reading the labels more. I'm going to shop better, eat better. And so these particular class are not vegetarians per se, or, you know, classified as the type of folks that just won't eat certain things. They just gravitate naturally to healthy. And if it tastes good, then they'll, they'll go for it. It's not that they won't have a cheeseburger or indulge in some chicken wings, but in, in part, they will just kind of, they've taken the time off to really educate themselves about the finer aspects of eating and quality of foods. And so they, they're not going to go back. So they're, they're always leaning towards a vegetarian or healthier side whenever offered. I've never heard that term. So thank you for adding that into my, my dictionary. Okay. So you've got this barbecue sauce, you're in Atlanta and you want a huge deal in Dubai. And yeah, now well, your sauces are international. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, since we talked, we just won the flavor of Georgia from UGA. <laughs> we just got an award in AJC and we just got the winning logo. And so we're going to, we're, we're excited about that. So we, we are the flavor of uh, Georgia now in the category of barbecue. Wow. So is there any particular sauce that won or is it? Yeah, it was the habanero. And we presented habanero, Georgia sweet. And uh, so our habanero was the sauce winner of the flavor of Georgia. Congratulations. That's big news. Okay. So, so bring us to Dubai. You, you see so your award-winning huge contract out of Dubai. Like what makes a guy from originally California living in Atlanta, selling sauces on the street corner to now being a global expert you know, a global entrepreneur. And I would say pure tenacity and hustle. So, you know, I'm a kid from South Central Los Angeles with an expected success rate of probably 0.0%. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the ability to go out here and succeed has always been my, my goal, regardless of what challenges are around. And so food industry got me when I had a bad appendix and well, I did code on the table, got brought back and I had a few other surgeries, subsequent surgeries uh, after that to um, save my life from a bad appendix. And it was post-traumatic and uh, it set me back. I had a colostomy put in, installed and I, I was in my 20, I was like, this is devastating. I had it Transfer to the classroom here later. It's very humbling. It was, it's always kept me pushing. And so once I couldn't fix cars anymore, I gave a serious thought to cooking. And so I transitioned from that to preparing meals and destroying my wife's kitchen all the way down to no ovens. So, she, so when I finished doing all that, I <clears throat> decided to tear up a restaurant instead of my own house. But that had paved the way for some interest at least. And then I used the restaurant as a catering ground 
And so, um, did you start your own restaurant or did you I go did. work? Okay. No. Yeah. So you started. went from working on cars to cooking at home to then starting your own restaurant. Correct. Catering. Yep. Catering arm. And so we handled Nelson Jeter from Georgia Power, all the way from the government, the government governor and Atlanta. Wait, 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 hang on. So were you doing <laughs> were you doing catering yeah. from the restaurant or were you running I was like doing a it from my house? <laughs> okay. and, then I, and then I got out of my house and I used that facility just to prepare foods for my events. And so okay. And so Eric Jeter and who were some of the other people you worked for? Nelson Jeter and boy, every mayor in Atlanta probably touched, ate some of my food at some point. Andy Young, I mean, you name it. I I just, you know, I played big until I got big. You know, I I, I did what I had to do to get where I needed to go was present myself where where I needed to be. One of my mentors who walked me through this city was William Sonny Walker, rest in peace, but, you know, taught the Little Rock Nine and I don't know. He had three mentees and I was one of them. Met me on an elevator. <laughs> said, what are you doing, young man? It's like, this guy is very interesting. <laughs> He's you know, not to I said, wearing a Rolex. <laughs> you know? So we started, we hit it off really well. And he's pretty much walked me um, through the city and kind of mentored me around the personalities and, the, and things like that. So it, it opened some doors to hospitality. And, and so that's, that's me. I started to just really just out of my kitchen and, and I always loved to eat. So I just it turned it into a passion because food just didn't have flavor in certain places and no one was being creative. And I felt there was a niche mission missing. And so I just started <clears throat> putting my personal spin. So I got a four inch thick food book after I got out of the hospital from Barnes and Nobles and started purchase, you know, looking at all the techniques and whatever I could to get my sleeves uh, less tender and more exposed uh, to to enter a world as a novice and didn't want to be th- not taken seriously or didn't think I knew what I was doing. So, okay, so you figured out the cooking. We know you've got that down yeah. pat. Yeah. But you've got so many people build the mousetrap and then they need to sell it. So. Mm-hmm. This chance encounter in the elevator really helped grow your sales or what were you doing to bring in business? Well, I, my time clock went back and forward a little bit there. So that was the pre-Atlanta greeting and with my mentor, but fast forwarding into the restaurant where we started, I, to get my products packaged to your question, I, I, once I got into the restaurant and I was catering with these, as I was developing these sauces to go on my recipes, I then soon decided that I would open the restaurant and start to use it since I was catering as a tasting ground for more catering opportunities. Because if people came in and liked it, I can sell them parties or office parties, and I would be able to increase my catering revenue. So I did that. But in that situation, I had to take another step back and say, well, do I really, as an artist, want someone to come in and understand how I make what I do and copy those things and then become my competitors in my own business? Or do I go ahead and manufacture these things and then I can take my mind off the idea of I'm sharing my recipes with. So I used to make my recipes in the back of the restaurant or one stay in the front, and just provide sauce for the day or whatever it was they were doing. I got tired of that, you know, getting to work to make my sauces in the night or in the morning before people arrive to work. And wow. Packing up my seasonings and hiding them. <laughs> I don't need you trying to do the math because that's just me. And, and then eventually I, I contacted a co-packer and had him batch the recipes and make them for me under my restaurant brand, white label under, well, I'm the label. So under my brand. And uh, use that for additional revenue as a store or sales. And uh, it evolved to many different degrees of what I was doing when I was doing it, being that it had to match my storyline. So it became a barbecue restaurant label, then it became a gourmet label, then it became this label. And eventually on a long ride to the co-packer with my wife, I said, you know, we can't keep running restaurant food company. We need to separate these things so that I can focus on each of them differently. I don't want to show up to a food restaurant convention going, you know, Three Brothers Barbecues here or somebody's restaurant here. And a food company, that's what I do. I create foods. It just happened to unfold later as things start to progress that there were two different horses, just like catering and restaurants. They're two different animals in the same house, but you can't 
same, you can't treat them the same, you can't handle them the same. They're two separate entities within the same house. So I separated the two and did a name search and trademark Brooks Made Gourmet Foods and moved into my food company in 2000, 2004, started to focus on the food company as a separate company. And then 2016, I incorporated, titled it, and then trademarked it. And then from last year to now is when my success started with my food company, literally in June of last year. So June, we're recording this on Cinco de Mayo of 2022. And it, so it was June of 2021. So we yep, thought we were coming out of the pandemic, Correct. but we weren't. So what happened in June that skyrocketed your success? Well, that, that beginning situation started in the first of the year. I just enlisted a company to, out of New York to, you know, brand the company, you know, to give us our identity, to tell our story. And they were concerned for foods. They handle things like Mondelez and Tabasco and other match chef. And so we asked them to come on and partner with us to help our business to, to, to stand on its own legs and try to have some proper market differentiation of what's out there. So they did so. And we came up with our colors, concepts, newer labels, and, and, and really did a great job telling my story once they understood it. And so that helped me not to keep reinventing my story and, and focus on sales and, and not my identity so much. And so that really helped us in June, as we were doing our, our question here on our trade missions, we you know, we partnered some years back while we were trying at the restaurant to develop our sales. I took on shows at the at the convention centers here in Atlanta, where I was approached by the Southern United States Trade Association known as SUSTA. Okay, so hang on before we go into how yeah. you got into international. So you were doing trade shows and how else were you marketing your your mm-hmm. sauces? So domestically, farmers markets, trade shows, really just word of mouth, clients coming in and out of the restaurants. It really was a a time for me to actually figure it all out. So it wasn't the star pony. We were catering and taking care of guests at the restaurant while presenting our products and getting more and more feedback, more and more interest. And eventually at the food shows, we were approached by the Economic Development International Wait, so ha- Okay, so hang on. I want to understand a little bit more. Were you mm-hmm. doing any sales on Amazon or online oh. or e-commerce? So it was all no. good old fashioned meeting people letting sa- yeah. sample. So there you are in Atlanta. So mostly local then. You weren't doing much outside of Atlanta or out of Georgia. No, we were. No, that's it. We were literally just hand to hand combat sales. And that was you know, I had too many horses. I was riding at the time to try to focus on the sauce company. So I, it really kept me from starting a food company until, you know, after 2016, when I incorporated it. Um, mm-hmm. And the pandemic really did something too, because it allowed me to, I sold my restaurant, I franchised it and sold it to one of my employees who wanted to buy it. And then I just put all my energy into rebranding my food company at that point. In 2021. Okay. So thanks. I just wanted to understand what you were doing for marketing then, because it will help anybody that has a product. Um, so then you're at, you're at this trade show and you get approached by the Southern, go ahead and finish that thought. Mm-hmm. You know, your points are correct. I mean, so it was a lot of just wherever anyone talked about having events and barbecues, whether I went down a list of all the local farmers markets or you know i work with my local costco and they have an organization they give to miracle fund or whatever and they were trying to generate funds so we cooked for free and then they'd let us you know let customers try our products and so we'd sign people up petitions to see if they you know say hey we want this in the store so we just did many blitzes that just all the local schools, we uh, had banners in the auditoriums for the gyms, lacrosse, soccer, football. You know, we gave to the local, they called us for lunches, they called us for football graduations, and we, you know, be the choice they'd be calling for. And we developed a little clientele and fan base from the sauces there too, and the local PTA and the national PTA. So we looked at all different aspects of the community to establish relationships and trust and 
And then they'd come to your restaurant or to Costco to buy? Correct. So it didn't necessarily matriculate into actual sales, but I knew I had to be, be out there and stimulate the conversation and also be in a place where you can actually tap back into it later. Right. And then, okay. So then you're at this trade show because you're doing the marketing. No, you could get the barbecue sauce out there and let people try it and then they're going to love it. And you're, mm-hmm. and who are you approached by? So yeah, we were just here and I think then they were separate, but it was the Department with Economic Development, the international portion of it in Georgia. And so they asked me what I have in foreign agriculture services, would I ever consider taking my products to other markets outside the United States? And I thought that was very interesting because I thought, well, who's asking me to do anything? (laughs) So I was like... Yeah. True salesperson, entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if you're asking, and, you know, I'm sure not running. So I'll go where whoever wants and needs me at that time. And yeah. so I'm like, if you're all that interested, we need to talk. And so they said, you know, we have programs that can create market assessment studies for you. And um, these are your own tax dollars at work. And we can set up meetings with other clients. I was like, sounds good. Yep. Yep. I'll take all of that because <laughs> all this work I've been doing right here, that's a whole lot better. <laughs> and you ain't even on my payroll. So yeah. Get my tax done. dollars have already paid for you to do yeah. this work to Absolutely. help me export. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So they, they and I got to get, we got together and SUSTA was later a conversation, the Southern United States Trade Association, because of the export assistance they offer. Bernadette Witts, Lang, executive director from Louisiana, their organization, you know, I signed up. They've been around since 1973. And, you know, so they're funded primarily by USDA. So to promote foreign agricultural, you know, trade or or United States trade to foreign, to other countries. So FAS, Foreign Agricultural Service is part of it and MAP, Market Assessment Program. So they have like a lot of different umbrellas underneath this program to help with, with the ability. And this is from, you know, and they have different names for different regions. So this is just the Southern region and they may have a North region or a Western region that promotes their trade as well. But I'm in the Southern region. So this is where I have to sign up for the services that are available. And so then you start to parlay within the other programs within their programs, which helps to to offset. So they help small to mid-sized companies like myself, then to, to help you to get over the first wave, because there's just so many um, expenses to exporting and challenges. And so I love the program because it allows you to tap into, you know, different programs with the U.S. Department of SBDC, which is another tax dollar with the UGA. And so they have an extension with professionals who uh, focus on domestic or international situations. And so through that, they were allowed me to sit down and establish trade programs, trade logistics, help you with your costing, look at your total analysis of your business plan, and to make sure you don't go into something that you're not comfortable with and it not work out for you. So we've had bigger deals that just didn't line up financially and we were advised not to do it and we didn't. So there's a lot of support there with tax dollars when you're talking about consulting fees adding up and firms and these these resources are available to citizens at no cost because they're they're tax funded and they they pay into a tax system of course so these these things are free but a lot of people don't know about them so I always recommend people to these programs because they work they're there and at some point you'll grow past it or maybe not but it's a great place to start and at least have yourself financially fit and, and, and accountable and aware of your certain, certain situations. So a very good resources for obtaining. Okay. Things. So yeah, you mentioned the USDA and the foreign agricultural service, the SBDC, which is the small business development center, economic development agencies in all the states, and then you've got the export center. So if you're in any food products, you'd go to FAS, the Foreign Agriculture Service. If you yeah, have- they're all, 
they all run under these umbrellas, as I mentioned. So it's just you find your niche and what works, um, what programs are more advantageous to take advantage of within these same homes of information. So within SESTA, these programs are all kind of umbrellas underneath that are funded through BUSDA. So you may take costs and cost fair 50% or they are, you apply and when you travel, they'll cover things like your meals, entertainment, flight, hotels, and things like that. And they have a, an index for you to calculate those things and submit those so that you can get 50% reimbursement. So that helps you to take that money and put it back into your marketing or your equipment or travel and things like that. Okay. And so if, for anybody listening, we'll put in the show notes links to all the different places where you can start. Cause mm-hmm. I think what you're talking about, Walter, is just get started in one place and then they'll point you Correct. to the different people that Correct. can help. Correct. Okay. So they approach you at the trade show. They say, have you been thinking about exporting? You go, yeah, sure. And then you find <laughs> out about all these supports. So what yeah. are some of the supports that you actually got besides the covering the travel, you know, 50% travel costs, which is huge. Yeah, it's, it's very good. And it's like two people only, but I, you know, that's, that's okay. Cause you can always staff on site venues and, you know, listed help there, but <clears throat> it helped in the fact that if you had to do this outside the program, the money that you would have to put together in order to facilitate even these meetings or these hotel visits or arrangements, I mean, it would be astronomical. I mean, there's just, it would, you would have to fly to these countries and develop your own logistical trade connections and and that would you don't have those connections you don't they're not they're just you would have to work outside of a already established program so it would not be in your best interest to try to reinvent a wheel that that exists even if you didn't take part in any subsidies or discounts the program itself just lends itself to more relationships because it's it's funded to to promote trade so i don't think you can find the contacts, the relationships, you can't really navigate the legal jurisdiction or even have to figure out how to translators for that matter, or just facilitate professional meetings. I mean, entrusted because it's about the relationships and there's, you know, people don't just start doing business with you because you have a product. They have to feel comfortable trusting you and understanding that they won't get burned in the process. Okay. So you, I mean, that's fantastic to hear because I have heard a lot of companies just say they have a product, but they're too scared to go international. So you meet somebody, you meet the SUSTA people mm-hmm. at the trade show, and then they tell you about all these supports. What was the next step then? Did you well, go to a... Yeah, oh, I, worked with my, I worked with my economic... You know, development agency international right here in your local jurisdiction. And so they are able to, you know, they know far more than you could just try to ask questions because you don't know what you don't know. And Mm -hmm. so being there, as you say, allows you to parlay. So then once you learn one thing, then someone tells you something else. So bring me into, so the first meeting, what did you learn? Did they talk about trade show or website or translation or introduction so would you tell me your story but the first conversation then is like you know who are you right because where are you as a company you're standing you know what is your what is your financial situation because it doesn't matter if i tell you you can do exports you can't afford to do export even at a discount what's the point you can't do it so they'll they'll walk you through a series of ideas like okay well why don't we stay domestic why don't we build up some sales? Why don't we try only taking missions that are in the U.S. when they travel here? They're still foreign, but at least, you know, you can only take what you can kind of bite off and you can only take what you can respond to. So they, they want to be very careful. As I said, it's a relationship building business and they can't have you messing up relationships by bringing people to the table that can't deliver. So just so as what fast- revenues, revenues or how would you how would a company know that they're ready to go international? I don't don't know if they do it by product shipped or revenues or size or. It's, it's your capacity really. And then you can't really be everything to everyone. I think that's why I stayed international because you can't spread yourself too thin. 
You can't try. So to it's pay. more about production capacity rather than the revenue you already Staffing, have. Staffing, production. Like I said, you can't run two 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 houses. You know, with different horses, you can't. You you tear yourself apart. So if I'm trying to be domestic and international at the same time, I just double my efforts because that's double marketing, double everything. Everything you're doing internationally, you have to do it domestically, and you don't get the subsidies for doing domestically. So that means you have to take your research dollars that you're using trying to do a national and wipe them out because you're going to spend it domestically. So interesting. So if you've got capacity to grow, you can go after the U.S. market on your own, or you can go international earlier by getting the supports and the subsidies. That is such an interesting twist that I never even thought about yeah, and that's what I learned. Huh. That's what I did. You know, I said, you know, I'll work with what's available to me and what's being funded, and that cuts my work in half, which makes it make sense to me. And so, all I have to do is focus on meeting clients and delivering. That's it. And so that that was great. You know, and our domestic market is competitive. It's not as a foreign market. So you're not going to just just get a, this is not 1950s and 40s where you, you put something in there and it's ooh and ah and ooh and you know, you're original and oh, no, everyone's original. No one could be original, this attitude we have today. So you almost have a, I have a disadvantage to try to be domestic first because I'm going to be met with, we got that, we have that, you know, so what, so what, so what, so what, so in the interest of me trying to be motivated to, I can't have that. I can't, I can't have you telling me so what. And there is an answer to so what. That's why you asked the question. But I don't want to. I don't want to deal with that. I'd rather go somewhere where somebody's interested in my products, and then I'll I'll deal with so what later. I'm domestic already. I'll see you uh, when I see you. You know, I'm just not doing it. You know, so um, let somebody else play that game. I don't have time for that. You know, I put I put too much energy. I get up too early to be. De- you know, be given depressing information, you know, I, I'll, I'll pass. So it's but an easier, so it's easier to gain market share going international this way then because yeah. you're well, naturally different. Well, yeah. I mean, you're naturally, you, well, you, you have to differentiate yourself and you also, right. but the benefit of it, of it too, is that the, the, the market research is the key because they give you that, they give you their research. They, they, they go into two-week market research analysis, comparing your brand to what's on the marketplace and what the price points are. That's huge. I mean, that's, that's absolutely huge because if you're way too priced, why? Hi, why? You have to answer that, so what? And, and, and you have to explain your position and defend your position or lower your position. But you're in, you're, you're in the know. You're, you're not you know, here playing, you know, well, how much will you pay? What will you pay for it then if you're not coming? Well, I can't afford to ask you how much you'll pay for something. I know what it costs to make. I mean, I need need my profit margins. Right, right. So when you said they do the research? Yeah, they'll do a market assessment wherever you want to go. So this is SUSTA? SUSTA, well, no, this works out of the economic development yeah, SUSTA. In, in our situation, our, they just brought under the same umbrella. They used to operate separately, and now they're in one house. So, SUSTA so you was, got so you know, our taxpayers paid for you absolutely. to do analysis to figure out which market would be the best to go into, which is brilliant because it increases the exports and the balance of trade and helps the whole economy, economy. rise. Right. Yeah, because you're bringing the money back into the United States in the house, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. That's a- Okay. So I, I, it was a no-brainer for me after banging my head against the wall, not finding real solutions to selling domestically. I was like, yeah, I mean, no one's jumping up and down here. I mean, you right. know. Ah, another yeah. barbecue sauce till they yeah. serve chocolate or the habanero. But yeah. anyway, that's besides the point. <laughs> Absolutely correct. Okay. So they do the research and what markets did they pick for you to go into or recommend? They don't. I, I pick. So what I did they the reports I need for the for the region I'm seeking to enter? So what so regions China, did you originally target? Every last one of them in Mexico, Brazil, Canada, you name it. I'm like anything, all of it, give it to me. I'll take it all. And what <laughs> did you learn? Because you're not you, you, um, it's pretty hard to go into all markets at once. So you must have narrowed it down. I did to the to lay, lastly to the Middle East and Mexico, but 
you know, it, 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 it's, it's only as far as your dollars will let you. So you, you focus on the campaigns that start to give you an ROI, and then you can take those ROIs other places. So some are easier, some are more or less, you know, available to you based on the, the sensitivity of the market or pricing, depending on how good your product is. So you're not going to do very well in Mexico per se, if it's expensive, you're not going to do very well in certain places when you talk about gourmet, because it's like, we can't buy it. So there's that. So you learn where your product will be best fit. And then it requires you to assess the fact that you're a mid-level or high-level manufacturer. You can't give retail pricing when you're a novelty or a gourmet product, right? So you, you don't fit in certain niche markets. You have to know that you're a high-end product that only a certain amount of people can afford. You have to make adjustments, you know, size. So you, decide, so you decide the Middle East and Mexico. And then what did you do next once you made that decision? I, I put my efforts and dollars in those buckets. And then I booked all the trade missions that I can get going into those regions, uh, as well as my research and build relationships. So my key was to go into these areas and looking for distributors. As a manufacturer, I don't want to play you know, distributor in someone else's country when all I want to do is ship containers. And they can just, they can handle it from there. My thing is to get it to the ports, you know, ensure it and intact, and then they can uh, get it to their supplier, retailers, or local markets from there. Okay, so tell me about the trade missions that you went on because this is a popular thing for people to do. And if you haven't been on one, there's a lot to learn about them. So, yeah, trade transmissions are. You know, with the programs, it helps providing some checklists and things like that of that nature. So leading up to your show and making sure you have your promotional material, making sure you have you've reached out to your folks on the ground in those areas, your your key folks that work for you on the ground through the government entities that are in place, you know, diplomats and so forth. So they can because they're on the U.S. side, they're going to make sure things are um, going smoothly for you with the relationships to export and shipping contacts with governments on that side to make sure that they can remove red tapes and things like that if they, they incur. So there's a lot of folks on the international waters working for the U.S. in consulates and, and market areas that are there strategically to help you with sales and marketing and contacts and relationships on the ground too as well. Okay. And what promotional material did you take? On your first show, um, we created our sales brochures talking about our palletization of the products, um, SKU number of pallets, SKU numbers, individual SKU numbers, everything a distributor needs in order to input their, their, their products into their systems and their global systems so that they can, you know, get it to the marketplace there. You have to create the labels. You use stickers at first because I don't create product labels for regions that I'm not necessarily. Um, sure, I'm going to enter that market. So I'll create, I'll just use their, their, their equivalent to FDA's requirements for those regions. And then we, we have fixed stickers that just like Canada or anywhere else that has dual labels that have the ingredients and nutrition facts in their current language. So you had to translate the labels then into Arabic when you went into the Middle East? Yes. Eventually Mm -hmm. it was a two year, I mean, it was a two year, four year campaign and I was successful in two. So that, that really helped me cut down my time because I've, you know, taken Jordan, Egypt, Saudi, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and, you know, Qatar and made them, you know, their clients. So that allows me now to focus on just delivery of products and, 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 and my partnerships and relationships that I've created with newer products, more innovative products in R&D and things like that now to increase our product awareness and more products in the region. Okay, so there's so much there I want to ask you about, but I'm going to bring you back into, so you prepare for the show by developing the sales brochures. And did you, so you translated your labels. Did you translate your sales brochures? No, because U.S. American is a standard language now. So no matter where you go, people speak their language, but their second language will be English. So in most cases, everyone speaks English. And so okay, so going to the yeah. trade shows in the Middle East, you really yeah. felt comfortable. There's no one that no one really don't if they don't speak English, they have a translator with them, literally walking around. 
Okay. And these are a lot of the distributors or international people that you're meeting at the trade show. Well, yeah, that was the Gulf Foods, which is the largest food show in the world. And so that food show, you know, you register prior to going to the convention centers, you set up your feelers in the system, you register your products on through their system and you go through their whole checklist. They don't let you just show up. You have to really go through their onboarding process prior to arriving at the convention center and your badges and so forth. And you do this for domestic or international for that matter. They're, they're all the same. You have to go through a sequence of checkpoints and things like that. But once you've done that, then, you know, the buyers will let you know really that you lean on the buyers for their credibility and their knowledge of the marketplace to let you know what you really can and can't do. Hence, you know, you don't want to try to go into a region that you don't necessarily live and then tell them what you're going to do. So you really want your buyers to navigate you and they do this every day. So they'll, they, if they like your product, they'll walk you through a series of, Hey, we have to do this and you have to do that, or you might have to get this, or you might have to get that. And if it's not something you can afford to do, then you won't be in their marketplace. But, you know, so our translation is on our website. So you can translate things from different languages to to your language so you can read it. So our, our communication is there on our website. And so markets that we go in, we try to make the website convenient to those communities that can buy. So if we open marketplaces on Amazon or walmart.com, we also make those available in communications to those regions as well. Okay. And have you ever measured, like if you did English only on your website versus the translation, what a difference that would make in sales? Not really, because as a chef or, or a service person, I, I always try to think about the user experience because it doesn't matter what I think. It matters that if I went to my website, that I can understand it. And if you're mm -hmm. going to be a consumer for me, that I make it available to you to understand, or if you won't buy it, that's kind of, to me, it's like a one, two, three. It's, you definitely want to always look at the lens through the customer's eyes. You can't look at them through your eyes. You, you have to use your website from a user perspective, a user's situation. Most people try to work from their own side of the dashboard, but you have to be a customer in your own company to understand what's broken what's broken or what's what works. So it's real interesting because you separate out the buyers at the Gulf Food Show in Dubai, they speak enough English that you can do business with them and they're going to get your, your products out. But when you're talking the consumer with the labeling and the website and any communications from the, the consumer, you're translating, you're speaking their language. That's right. Well, because, you know, the buyers are not talking necessarily to the customers either. You know, mm -hmm. so at the end of the day, they're, 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 they are when they're getting the products in the region into grocery stores and things like that. So they'll, they'll touch it from that perspective. But those people are actually touch back on your product at some point. They're going to come back to your store, your website. They're going to do their homework. They're going to say, you know, what does this company stand for? What, what are their ethics? I mean, what are their values? Do, I, do they align with my values? And the customers today are all about the electronics experience. And if you don't have your products online, information-wise and readily when those compute those those consumers scan your products and 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 you don't have a compelling argument for them to buy your products they won't right right okay so you prepared in advance of the trade show and then you went to the trade mm -hmm. show and met people and then what did you do after the trade show to make sure it was successful so I wanted to touch back on one thing about the trade show is that you also have to be ready for information. It doesn't matter if you go to a trade show and that you're not, you're not capturing information. You have to be able to separate the wheat from the shaft, so to speak. You really have to be able to say your, your, your staff is, is very familiar with not being rude, but also efficient and know how to cut off conversations and move to the most efficient one that will buy from you. So you really have to take time to groom your staff on how they're to respond in those regions to those clients and so that you can get the most out of it as far as contacts and sales. So, you know, that's really important. And the trade show has tools that you can use and scan badges with your phones. I usually pay for those. And as people walk around badges, you're scanning 
scanning them into your system, into your CRM system to download later. And you also commute to those portals within their system. So people set up meetings with you through those apps. They, other agencies communicate with you through those apps. So it becomes a phone line for the convention center and for yourself. You're not on your phone. You're on their, their network and their systems. Okay. Yes. That's a really good point of how trade shows have changed since then. And I, I was at Inbound a couple of years ago before the pandemic, which is a big marketing conference in Boston. And I could, I could schedule a lot of meetings and it was cool because you'd say, all right, I want to meet you at 1030 at table three. And then you'd both Mm -hmm. show up there. That's right. hundred (laughs) percent. And they facilitate it, you know, the meeting, the room, you know, and, and everything is digital. So I would say on the brochures, I've made sure they were digitized and then they were uploaded so that people can download them either on my website or either at the trade shows, because, you know, you can print a lot of material, but everybody has a smartphone. And most of the time people will just come by your booth and take a picture of your stuff and keep it moving. Like they'll say, you know, you can keep it. I just took a picture of it. And so QR codes really helped us to, you know, minimize the ability to waste paper. So having QR codes directed to information is a whole lot more efficient than spending, you know, tons of money on print that may only use be used for that show, you know? And then what do you do with it? Yeah, you got the discount for it, but it's in the trash. It doesn't mean anything anymore. So, you know, you have to embrace the technology as much as possible because that's the follow-up to your question is that you actually have these people captured now and a lead mm-hmm. capture tool. So now you just have to respond to them. Thanks for meeting at the show, you know, blah, blah, blah. And those people are like, you know, excited because a lot of times people go to shows and they really just don't follow up. Okay. So follow-up is the post-show. Yeah. I want to swing through this and then I want to get to the, to your success story and we'll end on that because that's a tremendous story. Okay. So what, what kind of follow-up did you do after the show? The follow-up was great because I was able to reach back out through, you know, you have WhatsApp and a lot of the folks outside of the U.S. are on WhatsApp. I didn't know what it was until I left the country. I was like, what is WhatsApp? So it's a messaging system for free. And a lot of these countries have them. You can place calls and also text back and forth. Your profile's there. I have it linked to my CRM systems. So I get uh, all of it streamlined into one place. I'm able to follow up and turn them into quotes, into leads, leads into sales. And this is all from, you know, just imagine if I text you, you know, you kind of like, if you got my number, then it's kind of like, I know you or something. So you, you, you have a leg up and that makes it more personal. So a lot of folks, you know, my WhatsApp was nothing before I traveled. So I know all of it is in there is, is primarily uh, for clients. And so they are able to inbox me directly anytime, all day, any night. And, you know, and I work on two different, three different time zones. So I have clock, you know, when you're growing, cause you start buying clocks and you're putting them on the wall and setting them somewhere else. And you're like, I'm going to talk to him at that time him at this time and I'm gonna roll over and talk to him <laughs> there so you start really feeling like wow like I, I'm this is interesting you know I'm waking up at 3 a.m to talk to Johnny at 8 a.m it's like oh my god so you, you really <laughs> just like a you know al-qaeda operative I mean you're just you're just hiding from state you're just traveling from <laughs> place. you never sleep in the same place twice you, you're tired you, you know you, you, everything about it is just like you know you, you don't eat well you're moving I mean it's 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 crazy it's like you're on the run all the time but you're uh, loving it aren't you I do I do but I'm in <laughs> hospitality we're crazy so we keep coming back for more but, okay, so tell me, before we run out of time, June 2021, you said that was your huge success. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. So after the rebranding, we were confident enough to go out and we were still not fully rebranded before I started doing it. I was working in tandem with them because I said, look, I, I'm working faster than my parts. And so I'm, I'm doing things, whether you're rebranding or not. So you'll have to meet me where I'm at until you finish branding. And they did. They use old labels with newer branding uh, schematics until the, the labels were actually finished. I started branding before the labels were done. I was just moving. And so the labels would catch up with the, with the brand elements and then the assets start to line up, but they were always months behind me. But so the success was that I kept pushing 
regardless of, you know, saying, well, I'm not ready yet. There's no way I can do this or do that. And I said, no, I'm going to keep pushing. And yeah, it's, it's fickle. And sometimes it's frustrating because you, but, but the thing is, if, if you do it, when you think it's the time, it's probably not in the past. So your, your, your success is action and action is, is now. So you, you have to continue to push and, 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 and know that now is when you have to do it, not later, not tomorrow, not Right. You're creating that activity and you're trying to fill it. So were you at, were you at the food show in Dubai when you made a great connection? Like how did you break into those markets? So my first show was COVID code three, level three, almost four. (laughs) And how I was like, you know, you're going to still go. I was like, yeah, if the airlines are open, I'm going to fly over there because I thought of it this way. If anyone else went, they were serious because no one's going to just go. They needed something. And the serious players showed up and it wasn't very large, but it, it was large as food shows go. It was still the largest in the world, but the traffic wasn't as extreme as let's say this last past year, this, this year. Mm-hmm. And, and just imagine half of the U S pavilion, three, three quarters of the pavilion was empty. Wow. So, so for me, that, that narrowed the field. I'm all for it. I mean, it's like, I want to, if I'm the only guy there, great. Right. Yeah. So just to clarify pavilions, the U S takes a um, huge booth that they call the pavilion. And then there's lots of smaller tables in there and they bring the small and mid-sized businesses over and let them have, you know, or support them and having a table and introductions there. So you're there at the pavilion. It's mostly empty. And who comes over to you? So a lot there from, I mean, all so many regions come to our, came to our booth um, looking for U.S. products. And like I said, we, we shook hands with a lot of folks and tried to cultivate some relationships in Saudi Arabia and in Dubai. And so the two that stuck out to us were two great relationships. So we went to dinner, we hit it off very well. You know, I, I remiss to say that the, 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 one of the main reasons why I went to Dubai and I'll jump forward and I'll dovetail was the success story of two was with, with Warner Brothers originally. And they met us at a U.S. trade show and they actually took us, I took them to dinner and they, they were building that billion dollar theme park in the Middle East at the time mm-hmm. and really loved the products and said, we want to get your products into our theme parks and Ferrari world and everywhere. But again, as I said to you earlier, I was still in the process of identifying my, my labels, who I wasn't, but I kept pushing. And so it stalled out, but my cousin worked in Dubai and was on an elevator with the head of Warner Brothers for food and beverage. And I only knew the guy below him. And so he said, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm here on business. I'm a nuclear you know, plant inspector. And the other guy said, well, I'm with Warner Brothers. He said, well, you know, my cousin, Walter Brooks. Yeah, I know Walter Brooks. Yeah. And next thing you know, he's like handing me the phone. I'm talking with Eric, which I mean, uh, Alan, who's the head of uh, food and beverage for uh, Warner Brothers, restarting that whole process from the top down. So he was in Dubai and it really sparked me to, to decide to go ahead and make the missions to Dubai after that. But moving forward, back to your question, I, I shook hands with many of distributors in Dubai and that we didn't do anything then, but they were very impressed. And we had trade missions. So we knew each other prior to the, the travel because it was Zoom. And so we had a lot of face-to-face time. And then I finally met the distributors when I got there. So we had some some in time to, to, to kind of get to know each other a little bit. And so once I got there, I felt more comfortable. And eventually it took a year to now to sign with my distributors. And, you know, they handle about 70% of the marketplace in Dubai. And actually after being with them, the other distributors said, if they want it, I want it because they were the largest distributors. So that put us in touch with many other larger scale distributors that are friends and said that if he's wants your product, I don't, I want your product. And so it was just that relationship. It's all about those relationships that you cultivate once you establish um, some clientele down there. And so we, we shook hands. And this year I got an email saying, you know, we want, well, when I was there last February, this February, 
I was taken on a tour from one of my distributors through the entire Dubai. I mean, I had no, I, I this guy was older than me. I didn't know how he was standing up. I mean, all day, all night. And I was tired. And he was just like an energizer bunny. You know, he's like taking me everywhere. He said, yeah, you got to know Dubai and polo fields. So, so let me jump back because I think this ties into the four-year uh, plan that you accomplished in two years. So it sounds like Susta said, allow four years of doing trade missions, meeting people, building relationships and going to conferences before you hit something big. Mm-hmm. But you did that all in two years and signed some big contracts. Yeah, I did. I, I actually did. That was really cool. But I, it took a lot of cultivation. You know, it was building relationships. You know, what they did was they found interest in me and Debbie Cakes and they're a billion dollar company. So I wasn't in bad company there. And then, so it really drew a lot of attention because of all the vendors that they chose, I was their top pick. And so I, I was able to keep the relationship going, what's happening, how you doing, checking in, wishing well, they wish me well, and just, you know, earn the relationship. It's, And then I was taught, you know, from them as well. So it was about me not looking at this as a sale as just a a transaction. We became kind of like friends at that point. That last trip really kind of solidified that, that process because that's where I was like, wow, we're not just like, they're, they're now cultivating the relationship too. They're investing in there. And so next thing you knew, just from the trade show, we got our email saying that, you know, we're your distributors, terms, MOQs, minimum order quantities, all those good things. And, and that's just one of the Three, we picked up Saudi Arabia that said the same thing. And we also picked up another large distributor, you know, with Al-Sair, Troy Thrums, and then also in Saudi. So these are the major players of the food game in, in their country. So we were very pleased that, that the efforts that um, were afforded us to travel, take advantage of these opportunities abroad, cultivated these relationships that now... These multi-million dollar relationships that are allowing our company to grow, maybe create factories of our own, even in Saudi Arabia. That's incredible. So what do you think, if you're willing to share this, what I'd like to do is look at the ROI on how much you invested, how much support you got, and the size of the contracts that you won. So if anybody's thinking about whether it's worth it, they got the numbers. The good thing about this, and I'll start with this first, is that you are determined, you determine, you can't determine how you'll grow, but you determine what you can do while you grow. So you don't bite off more than you can chew. You, you have to take what's, you have to be transparent in your capacities because people don't mind if you're small. They just mind if you try to be small, big, and then you're really small and then you don't deliver. So you really have to give people the heads up and and be honest about your capacity to deliver because they don't, they don't mind having the conversation with you. The bad thing is that you didn't have the conversation with them. So a lot of it is Mm -hmm. don't, don't have this complex where, you know, your cards are held so close to your chest that you think that if they know this, then that, and that's what spoils it for you because your vendor is supposed, you're, you're supposed to be very transparent. It's a relationship. It's a huge relationship. Okay. So are you avoiding my question about no. numbers? <laughs> no, 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 no. I was like, no. should I dig in on no. this more? No, that will okay. get to the point of, of, of if, it, if it's worth it. And, 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 but, but as far as the investment goes, everybody's investment is different in levels. So, you know, we probably put a million dollars into this opportunity, you know, starting off with these, this entire process with R&D and, and product development and purchasing ourselves. Oh, yeah. No, I, what I meant is, mm-hmm. you know, you got the support from Susta. They paid for your travel. They paid for the trade show. They did the, the research. How much do you think it cost you out of pocket? to build that relationship in Dubai until you got the contract? A hundred thousand dollars. hundred thousand? Yeah. hundred K. Uh, and yeah. how much do you support? Do you think you got? For, well, that's going to be hard to measure. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, because it, all that research could really add up. Yeah. I mean, there's, if you kept it very simple, then it would be about, okay. If they offered a trade mission and it was $10,000, 
you got that for half, right? Or $16,000. And, and then you didn't even add your, your room and board, travel, meals, entertainment, taxis, trade show materials. So, you, so you're saying that one trip is maybe $50,000, you know, and you haven't shipped product too for your trade show. And so you're looking at about 50 grand maybe just, just to get to Dubai and back. And that's, you know, that's just that one excursion. And then you have to come back and do the paperwork to try to, you know, to recover some of the, the tradesmen. But, you know, I'm always- so, if you, mm-hmm. so you you probably out of pocket put in about a hundred K and you got at least that much support from Sustar, the organizations, at least that, yeah. if not more. Yeah. So they'll give you those, you know, some of those things, but here's, you know, there's, there's caveats to everything because it's not always sometimes about the, I take advantage of all of the subsidies, you know, because they don't meet my expectations. So in other words, if you have to fly there, they want you to fly an American airline leaving the United States. It's, you know, it's a US, US thing, right? So originally I wanted to take Emirates, but well, you can't, you have to fly over US, over US waters, and then you can change planes and do whatever you want. And then you come back on anything you want. The point is that I'd rather pay for my ticket because I'm not going to get there a day and a half trying to get through customs in two or three different countries on a discount. It's just too exhausting. And that's, that's the deal. That's what it is. And I, it's, it's, a, it's a program. But I, I now just fly Emirates out of New York and I just get there in 12 hours, 13. I, I can't afford to get there in a day and a quarter. Traveling right. is brutal. So I won't take I won't take advantage of the airline situation, maybe the meals and entertainment. So you start to boutique it a little bit to basically, as you grow, decide what you want to suffer or not suffer with to take the subsidies. Okay. So, so back to, so that's very interesting information. We could go another hour, but we're way, we're over time, but I want okay. to get to this ROI number. So you probably put in a hundred thousand and with these contracts that you got after developing relationships over two years, what do you think the value of those is? We look at about ten million dollars. Ten million dollars. <laughs> That's absolutely fantastic. So you can't talk about a better return of hundred k in to get ten million dollars in contracts back with relationships over there with a lot less competition. So if you have a food product from the United States or you know somebody who does, you definitely have to listen to this episode again or forward it along or check out the show notes to find your local contact to to see how you can get involved in this. This has been so valuable, Walter. I cannot express my thanks enough for all this fantastic information that you've shared. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. My my final word on this, right, is that making a sale is good, but making a relationship is better. So trust the respect and sustainable and be fair. You know, a lot of it is, is that you, 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 without the relationship, there is nothing. It's just a transaction. And so you, you, you got to avoid transactions and look for relationships. That has been so clear in so many of the episodes. It's about building those relationships and it makes business a lot of fun when you're traveling internationally. So where can people find you or buy your sauces? Wendy, you can, and I can't thank you enough for, you know, us meeting and and having this, this, this podcast that you have, and I give you all the kudos and much to your endeavor and success in what you're doing, but you can find our products. We just got accepted to Walmart Marketplace this morning. Congratulations. We just got accepted to, we just got accepted this morning, actually, to UNFI Marketplace. So we're at UNFI, we're at Walmart, Amazon, and then our website as well. And Infinite Isle in New York. Okay. And the website for anybody is Brooks, uh, B-R-O-O-K-S, made gourmetfoods.com. You definitely want to check it out. It's a beautiful site and it looks like a lot of good flavors. So I'm going to go in and order my, my chocolate now. I was supposed to do that before the show, but I will do it now. So thank you so much. You can reach out to Walter Brooks on his website if you want to reach him, or if you have any questions about taking your company international, feel free to call me because I can put you in touch with people that can help, or we can certainly help with your marketing communications. Thank awesome. you, Walter. And, and the favorite word in the Middle East is inshallah which is God willing. So that's the use of that word in the Middle East. I, I use, I like a lot culturally. So thank you so Nashallah, much. Inshallah, God willing. In, that is- inshallah, inshallah. Yeah. 
It's God willing. And they all, that's, that's after every statement you make to anyone in sales. It's a chest pat and inshallah, brother. If God is willing, we will do business. And you're like, inshallah, brother. You know, so you're like, because you want to, you want to, mm-hmm, me too. So, inshallah, God willing, inshallah, and we so want to do willing. business. That's right. So those are questions I want to make sure I got answered to. Oh, thank you. We'll end on that. Inshallah. Inshallah. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.